listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Alyssa Hurst, and I'm Lauren Fultzenberg. Some Republicans are still holding tight to the disproven theory that the 2020 election was somehow stolen. Some Republicans are tired of hearing about it. More than 100 of them have signed on to a call for American renewal. It's a group pushing a platform against division and political extremism in favor of what they call common sense. Basically, they're telling their party, make some changes or we're leaving. About two of every three Americans say they're ready for a third party. So is this the moment they've been waiting for? The first step toward dismantling the two-party system? We asked Seth Maskett if this movement is the real deal. He's the director of DU's Center on American Politics, so he is more than qualified to diagnose whether Donald Trump is truly to blame for the Republican divide and whether Democrats have to worry about a split of their own. But we started by asking whether this most recent threat is something others in the Republican Party are going to take seriously. It's a good question, and, and I guess we we never know exactly what kind of leverage uh, you know a splinter group within a party will have. My, my impression is that this is not a a a part of a, of the Republican Party that has a whole lot of leverage. That is, this consists mostly of. You know, either former office holders or um, just otherwise people without a lot of direct power within the party right now. Um, they don't have a whole lot of influence over who the party nominates um, or, you know, how the party votes, uh, you know, what, and what, you know, just sort of rank and file party members do. Um, so, you know, th there are some prominent names in there and they're, you know, I would say not to be completely dismissed. And I think they represent uh, a wider range of Republicans who are just simply, you know, unhappy with the direction of their party um, and haven't quite known what to do about it. But I, I don't know that they have a that they have a major voice within the party right now. The big names on there that jumped out to me are like Evan McMullen, who was a third party candidate for president, um, Miles Taylor, who wrote that anonymous New York Times op-ed. Um, there's Anthony Scaramucci from his brief fiery time with the White House. Anybody else in there that we should be taking note of? Uh, none that jumped to mind at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious because after the January 6th storming of the Capitol, uh, 17 members of Congress voted to impeach President Trump. Why haven't we seen any of those people jump on board here? Yeah, that's been interesting. There is uh, clearly a very different approach by um, certainly Republican members of Congress, uh, even those who are remain very critical of President Trump um, and, and clearly want their party to move away from him uh, and in a different direction. What we're seeing from this outside group right now is essentially a threat to start a new party, um, you know, to, to kind of splinter the Republican coalition to form something else. Um, the approach that these members of Congress and others seem to have taken is that they they still they still see themselves as Republicans. They seem to regard the uh, you know the the more Trump oriented Republicans as uh, you know maybe not permanently the way things are going to go in that party. Um, they're maybe a, a temporarily uh, dominant faction within the party, but not necessarily the way the party is going to end up. And I, I think they still see themselves as wanting to stay in the party and fight it out and offer Republican voters some real choices in uh, next year's congressional primaries, uh, but really try and fight 
for what it means to be a Republican rather than to, you know, threaten to bolt the party, which they're, they're clearly uncomfortable with doing. Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney lost her leadership seat earlier this month when she opposed this continued effort to question the results of the 2020 election led by former President Trump. Um, Senator Lindsey Graham, a Trump ally and a Republican from South Carolina, said, you can't go forward without Donald Trump. The damage done from trying to drive Trump out of the party is greater than keeping him in the party. What do you make of that rationale? I mean, it represents a, a really interesting bind. Graham himself is an interesting character in that, you know, if you listen to what he said um, the night of January 6th after the insurrection, he gave uh, you know, a fascinating speech on the Senate floor, basically uh, sounding like he was done with Trump and he thought the party should be too. It seemed to be like, you know, we've, you know, we, we had our fun with this, but we need to move on now. This is, this is, things are getting dangerous here. And that moment did not last that long. He is now very much back with the idea that uh, Trump is and should remain a very important part of the party. Not necessarily because Lindsey Graham endorses who Donald Trump is or what he stands for, but um, I think because he worries about Trump being outside the Republican Party, knowing that you know Trump has the ability to essentially break that party if he wants to. He can. He could run for president as a third party candidate and really split the Republican coalition. You know, he could put together his own uh, Freedom Party or Liberty Party or something like that and, and endorse his own slate of candidates for, for 2022 and 24. Um, if he is dissatisfied with Republican leadership, he, he really has the power um, to, to demolish them in upcoming elections. And uh, Lindsey Graham is determined to, um, to see that not happen. Um, and just sort of views that as a as the more serious threat. And, um, you know, I guess you could sort of see a, I think as Graham has described it, that there is a, a more positive side to Trump being within the party and that he turns people out to vote who wouldn't necessarily vote otherwise. Um, he has gotten, you know, your so-called working class whites to uh, actually show up at the polls and when he's not on the ballot, as we saw in 2018, they tend not to show up as much. Um, when he is on the ballot, the party tends to outperform its polling. Um, he tends to turn out people who are you know, normally pretty low propensity voters. And I think Graham is, uh, wants to keep that set of voters in the fold. He wants to keep benefiting from that and is also sort of terrified with what happens if they, those voters turn against him. Before we started recording this interview, um, via email, you told me the GOP has already had its civil war and the Trump faction won. Why do you think the former president's side prevailed? Yeah, um, that was really just a function of where the Republican Party was on January 6th, uh, that night uh, of the insurrection, when you saw just the bulk of the party, particularly in the Senate, um, voting to approve the election results um, and to, to certify the election that, that made Joe Biden president um, and just basically saying that it, it is time to move on. Um, and even, you know, 10 House members and seven senators uh, voting to impeach and convict uh, Donald Trump. And that was sort of the, the high watermark for the, the, the kind of anti-Trump faction within the Republican Party. Since then, um, what's really been most fascinating is that 
Trump's side has really managed to reassert itself, all while this has been you know, probably the most silent four months of his life. Um, he's, you know, he got booted off of most social media. Um, he's given a, a few statements to the press, um, you know, written a few uh, posts here and there, but for, most part, for the most part, hasn't said a whole lot. But uh, the, you know, the, the party has, is still treating him as though he is a prominent presence within the party who has the ability to help or hurt the party in the next year or two as, as he sees fit and as also a, a very likely candidate for president in 2024. Um, and uh, you see, you know, other potential presidential candidates um, like Ron DeSantis, like Nikki Haley, who are, um, you know, trying to put together some sort of organization there, but also not being too visible about it. So they don't offend Trump. Um, it's, you know, it's difficult to say what uh, actions Trump took in particular um, to, to do this. I, I don't think there really were many, but the fact that he has remained a, um, you know, a, a figure with some, some potential, um, you know, political future and that his base of supporters has not really abandoned him. I mean, he's lost certainly some approval since January 6th, but you know, he still has a very enthusiastic base of supporters within the Republican Party um, that, uh, you know, you've seen the rest of the party continue to, you know, to try and keep him happy. And, you know, they're, they're still, they're worried about alienating him. And, and those forces have really been quite impressive. I think one of the more telling moments of the last year was the fact that uh, last fall, the Republican Party officially declined to write a platform for its national party. Uh, they simply just endorsed Donald Trump's reelection and said, we, we support whatever he supports. Um, that was a really, that's a staggering move for a, you know, a prominent party in a democracy. We almost never see that sort of thing happen um, where they just sort of give up with a governing agenda. Um, so he's out of office, but he's also, you know, left behind a party that really doesn't not have a sense of what it stands for beyond supporting him. And they are, they are very much in that, you know, they, they, they are into that system and, and really, you know, don't have a way forward, uh, you know, without him right now. Do you think this infighting within the Republican Party can be traced to Donald Trump and only Donald Trump? Were there any cracks in the party foundation, you know, before 2015, 2016? There have certainly been cracks in the Republican Party. Um, I think Trump exploited those, but he did not invent them. Um, we have seen real splits within the party on, on a number of dimensions. Um, if you think back to when George W. Bush was president, you know, he had a, he was a good unifying candidate within the Republican Party, but he pushed for um, some immigration reforms that, that clearly a number of the more populist, the more nationalistic wing within the Republican Party was very unhappy with. And the party sort of continued to move in that direction with its, with its other nominations with people like McCain, with people like Romney, who continue to push for a somewhat more inclusive message on immigration um, to try and beat back the more populist wing of the party. John Sides and Lynn Vavrick, two political scientists, wrote this book, The Gamble, about the, the, the 2012 election. And also they did a identity crisis book about the 2016 election. They show in some polling research about you know, the positions of 
your average Republican primary voter and your um, sort of like Republican elites, Republican Party leaders. And there's this, over time, there's this growing divide over questions like immigration. And the distance between the party voters and the party's leadership was growing on the Republican side for many years, um, where Republicans basically just wouldn't nominate someone who would embrace all of that. Uh, that, all, that all switched with Trump, um, where he was essentially someone who was much more in line with uh, you know, the party's primary voters than he was with the party's leadership. He got in with kind of that, that anti-immigration language that the, the base Republican voters had been pushing for for, for many years. You know, now they're kind of stuck with that, and there just does, does not seem to be as loud a voice for things like immigration reform, for accepting uh, immigrants uh, within the party. That's just that's just very a very small minority within the party now. After President Biden was elected, some people on the left were protesting because they thought Biden was too moderate of a candidate to represent their interests. I feel like the right is getting a lot of the attention right now. Um, is there any threat of a fracture on the other side of the aisle? It's interesting to watch the Democratic Party during this time. Um, there are real factional divides within the party. You can see that in campaigns, the fundraising support for people like Bernie Sanders versus people like Poof supporting Joe Biden. Um, you know, th these are sort of ongoing divides within the party. For the most part, throughout 2020, the you know the party was on really good behavior. They were trying very much not to demonstrate a lot of major factional divides. They didn't want to look divided going into the election. There was, I think, a widespread belief among Democrats that that's part of why they lost in 2016, by looking too divided. And at least for the most part, you know, in the, in the early months of Biden's presidency, um, there has been this kind of, this fairly convenient truce between Biden's more moderate wing and uh, the, the sort of progressive left under the leadership of, of Sanders and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others in the House. You know, they, they will agitate for something. They will say, you know, we should, you know, whether it's whether it's defunding the police or uh, universal daycare, knowing full well they're not going to get all that they ask for. And then Biden will come back and say, well, I can't go that far, but here's what I can give. And he still delivers a, you know, fair amount of what the left wants, um, you know, giving them getting like 80 percent of the way to their goal, which is roughly what they were expecting anyway. So they, they had, you know, worked on something of a convenient uh, you know, almost a theater where, um, you know, the, the left comes out looking very left, Biden comes out looking very, you know, um, uh, centrist, and this seems to work for everyone. And but meanwhile, everyone sort of gets their policy goal. Where the split seems to be coming up now, just within the last week or two, is over Israel policy, which is, you know, not something that necessarily that the Democrats had planned on being a major issue right now, where, you know, you suddenly have a, a very vocal progressive left that's been very critical of longstanding U.S. policy in support of Israel and also um, specifically of, of, of Biden continuing um, to support Israel. So that's been one of the areas where I think the, you know, they haven't really figured out a, a truce between the two factions within the party on that. Um, and, and where you really do see, see things breaking down among, along some ideological lines right now. You mentioned Bernie Sanders, and I've always been so curious about this. Um, you know, he identifies as a democratic socialist, but in the Senate, he is an independent. On the other side, uh, in the House, Representative Justin Amash calls himself a libertarian, but his official affiliation is independent. 
why don't we have them, you know, going out and and declaring their party to be something other than independent? Is that just politics? Their two situations are fairly different from each other, but you know, to a large extent, this is just this is just smart politics of you know being within a legislature, um, a, a legislature that is you know overwhelmingly either Democrats or Republicans. Um, you know, Sanders has developed a you know political persona over the last thirty plus years as an independent who caucuses with Democrats. You know, his identity is really tied up on on being independent of the parties and really sort of thinking for himself and and not you know not really towing any party line, but also recognizing he really can't get much done without a party. Um, and this is just you know one of the the realities of legislative life. If he wants to. Um, you know, be influential at all on legislation. If he wants to, you know, bring stuff home to his uh, his 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 voters in Vermont, he really needs to work with a party to do that. And he's always felt himself closer to the Democrats. So, you know, it's just over his long career, it's it's rather interesting. He's always conveniently aligned with the Democrats just as much as necessary um, to to fulfill whatever goal he he has at that time, whether it's sort of you know delivering to his. His voters in, in Vermont or, you know, just being enough of a Democrat to run for president under its banner without fully committing to it. Um, that's been his style. Amash was a Republican until fairly recently. Um, he's always been, you know, more in its libertarian wing, um, you know, but he was, uh, you know, a fairly early Trump critic on the Republican side and was, you know, is, seemed to be just very disappointed with the party and very, you know, irate with the party, really, and, and the direction it was heading under Trump and simply felt he could, he could no longer be a part of that organization. So he still votes in a very, uh, very conservative way, but did not want his, um, did not want to be part of the Republican coalition. It's also a matter of, um, he felt he couldn't survive a Republican primary. Um, so he, you know, he's, tried to remain a, an independent for for those sorts of strategic reasons that he just you know the the you know republican voters republican primary voters are, are no longer welcoming of him and if if he he would not have survived in congress as a republican a gallup poll from earlier this year showed more americans than ever before think that a third political party is needed and republicans are also among those who you know two and three of them are in favor of a third political party do you feel like we've finally reached an inflection point in this country? Yeah, now seems like the right time for a third party, but it's also felt that way for a long time, and it doesn't seem to happen. It seemed like sort of all the tumblers had aligned in 2016 when you had two unusually unpopular presidential nominees. Um, and that, that seemed like a good time for a third party candidate to jump in and, and, and amass a lot of the vote, and it really didn't happen. 90% uh, of Democrats voted for the Democratic nominee, 90% of Republicans voted for the Republican nominee. There are a lot of um, uh, kind of institutional pressures that support the two-party system, you know, the most being that we have this election system of first-past-the-post elections. Whoever wins the plurality of a vote in a, in a district, in a, in a congressional district, in a, in a Senate state um, election, uh, wins that whole seat. And just, you know, this is a, a phenomenon that we, we called, uh, you know, named after a political scientist, Maurice Duverger. We call it Duverger's Law. But the simplicity of it is that voters tend to see a vote for a third party as, as a wasted vote um, at best. Um, at worst, it could actually enable 
you know, make it easier for someone that they least like to get into office. And so there, there tends to be not a lot of voting for that under this type of election system that we have. I think there's more um, opening for a change in our election systems right now. Um, there's a book by a political scientist that came out last year, um, Lee Drutman's book, uh, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop. Uh, it's a good book, and he describes, he's basically advocating for a multi-party system in the U.S. Um, and describes basically what would be necessary to do it that would um, actually get around needing to actually amend the Constitution. It's basically a combination of um, ranked choice voting and having multi-member congressional districts. And this is possible to do. At least for one, there's a number of states are increasingly interested in ranked choice voting. Um, we've seen that employed in, in several different states. A few are trying it in their primaries, uh, a few are doing it in their general elections. Right, and that's the system where you have a bunch of candidates and you say, this is my first choice candidate, but this is my second choice. Exactly, and this is my third choice. And then if, you know, if the third choice candidate, you know, if there's not enough votes for him, they, that drops out and then people's ballots get reoriented to their, to their next choice. That's been demonstrated to be a pretty effective way of doing elections. It's, it's, it's a little more reliable at uh, actually producing the results that most people want. Um, it's a little more taxing on voters. You know, that is, that they actually have to think through the ballot. They have to think through the candidates more than just simply casting a vote for either either the Democrat or the Republican. There seems to be a, a lot more satisfaction with it. It would also have come in really handy if you think back to like the the Democratic presidential primary here in Colorado um, uh, in the, you know, in, in March of 2020. Uh, there were like somewhere between 15 and 20 candidates on the ballot. Um, by the time that the Colorado primary came around, except most of them had already dropped out by election day. So some people had voted early uh, for people like Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar, um, who ended up dropping out by election day. Um, you know, it was, it, it was a little messy in that regards. Had we had something like ranked choice voting in that primary, that could have worked a lot differently. You could have voted for a candidate who dropped out, but then your second choice might have gotten in. Um, and it, that, that could have made a real difference. So there, there is the possibility of, of moving more in this direction. Um, and I think people are, you know, as you cited, you know, people are more frustrated with the two-party system than they've been in a long time. Um, and I think people are at least open to, um, to creating some changes in the way we conduct elections in this country. But that does sort of have to get through the, uh, you know, the elected officials as we have them now, you know, state legislators and members of Congress, all of whom have done pretty well by the current system. Right. And it's going to require actually voting for third party candidates when they're on the ballot. I, I give us yes. the, the 2020 numbers and the third highest vote getter and a libertarian who got 1.2% of the vote. If we want out of the two-party system, why aren't we voting like we want out of it? Yeah, and that's that's really a function of the style of election that we have. The the first past the post is the winner. Um, so if you you know think about uh, just voting in a congressional district, um, you have the Democrat, you have the Republican in there. You might have another candidate in there. There might be someone from the American Constitution Party or the Socialist Party or or something else. Um, and most voters see their, their list of choices and they, you know, they quite realistically rationalize that um, there's no point in voting for one of those third party candidates because I know they really don't have a shot. On the other hand, if, you, if we were in a system 
uh, like many other, you know, for example, many European democracies um, have uh, proportional representation. You know, imagine voting where you're just simply casting a vote for a party. Um, and you, you have a list of like 10 parties on there. Um, and knowing that it didn't really matter who got the most votes where you lived, rather if, you know, if one party got like 30% of the vote, they would get 30% of the seats in Congress. Well, then it starts making sense to actually cast your vote for something, you know, someone that's not in one of the major parties. Um, then there's actually some logic to it. Even, you know, if you're just voting for a relatively unpopular party that's only going to get 10% of the votes, they're still going to get 10% of the seats in Congress and they can use, they can have some leverage there. Um, that can make a difference. So in those kind of election systems, it makes a lot more sense to vote that way. But right now, in, in the style of elections we have, you know, most voters just simply don't want to don't want to see themselves as wasting their votes. They're not going to they're not going to throw away their votes on a candidate who they don't think has any shot of winning. This is not scientific at all, but anecdotally for me, locally here in Denver in November 2020, every race that had a candidate had a libertarian on there as well. So there were usually at least three candidates, sometimes four candidates for every one of these positions. I'm wondering if things are changing on a local level, maybe more noticeably than they are on a national level. That's certainly possible. And, you know, particularly with the with the libertarian candidates, that could represent um, sort of a, a former faction within the Republican Party that is dissatisfied with that party's direction under Trump. Um, that is, you know, had it not been for Trump, had it not been for the, you know, the sort of shift in the Republican Party over the last five years, a lot of those libertarians would be identifying as Republicans. So that, that has changed somewhat. There are you know, some, some small set of people who are outside the Republican Party who are like, you know, interested in moving in another direction and starting something else and just don't see the Republican Party as the, as the vehicle for that anymore. It's again, it's, it's not a large part of the electorate. Um, they're not about to win a lot of seats, um, but uh, it, it does sort of suggest that there's at least, you know, that degree of instability um, out there in the, in, in the electorate and, and in the parties. I mean, we've, you know, just going back historically, there's, you know, we've been a two-party system for a very long time for, you know, essentially, you know, two centuries or more. Um, but throughout that time, there's, there's usually been a, a host of you know, persistent third parties that they rarely win seats, but they, they capture some segment of the electorate somewhere, you know, two to 2%, maybe even 5%, occasionally win a congressional seat here and there, occasionally win some state legislative seats um, that, you know, they don't end up hugely consequential in terms of policymaking, but, you know, once in a while um, they can, you know, they can end up making you know, forcing the major parties to change their stances on something or, or brokering some compromises or playing a role in polarizing the system further. But, you know, they, they can be somewhat consequential. Anything else you wanted to mention? You know, there, there was one angle to this that I, I thought would be worth mentioning when we were talking about sort of the, the splits within the current Republican Party. To a remarkable degree, they don't look ideological. You know, if you look at sort of the Republicans who supported ratifying the election on January 6th, as opposed to those who, who were essentially trying to overturn the election. That's not necessarily a split between like the conservatives and the moderates within the party, but it is more about like orientation toward Donald Trump. 
you know, just it's, or, or like a, generally an, an attitude toward democracy, um, whether you believe that it's, it's okay for your party to lose elections once in a while. Um, that's a, you know, that's a dangerous area for a party to find itself in where it's actually struggling with whether it, it accepts democratic outcomes. Um, but at the same time, it's sort of striking that, you know, this increasingly important split does not seem to be about conservatism which has been like sort of the, you know, the guidepost for the Republican party for, um, you know, for uh, decades, um, if not centuries. And it's increasingly just a, a less relevant split within the party than it, than it used to be. That was Seth Maskett, a political science professor and director of DU's Center on American Politics. If you're looking for a rabbit hole to jump down, Hop on over to our show notes. We've linked some sites that have a timeline of all of the third parties we've ever elected to Congress. The Free Soil Party, the Unionists, the Readjusters, the Know Nothings, they're all there. And we dropped some fun videos that explain how ranked choice voting works, just in case you're curious. Alyssa Hurst is our executive producer. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. James Swearingen arranged our theme. I'm Lauren Fultenberg, and this is Radio Ed.